0: Hello everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the About to Review Podcast. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to light, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Alexa via TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbay, Podbean, all of the podcast platforms. Also youtube.com/slash about review to catch the interview. Segments for my guests. And if you go to aboutreview.com, you can read full show notes and links to all of the guests. You can also buy a t shirt at youtube.com or at aboutreview.threadless.com. Getting the intro right is like a 60% uh, margin of victory, so it gets rough. On today's episode, which is the first episode in February, aka Black History Month. I really wanted to showcase during this month my friends and my colleagues and people that I look up to who are doing great things. So today's guest is an actor, stand-up comedian, uh, a film aficionado or film fan, and fellow podcaster, Chris Lamberth of the Mundane Festival podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. I really uh, appreciate it. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, I was a guest on... Chris's podcast a few weeks ago, uh, fan favorite Tim Hall, the People's Critic, has been on a couple times as well. So uh, on today's episode, we're going to be doing a director spotlight, which we've not done in a while. I think the last one I did was Christopher Nolan, like last year. Oh, wow. What's so that? the director spotlight that we're going to be highlighting today is the one and only Spike Lee. So we'll go over... Just a few of his films, of the 77 films that he has directing credits for on IMDb. So before we go into all of that, we'll get a, get to know a little bit more about Chris. Uh, and of course, to start it off, we go to the original theme song composed by Damon Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's
1: all go to the lobby.
0: Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. To get ourselves a dream. Yeah! Let's not go to the ground. Yeah! Let's not go to the ground. Yeah! Let's not go to the ground. Yeah! Okay, so in this week's episode of the Getting to Know You, Chris Lamberth, <laughs> uh, like I mentioned, is a stand up comedian and actor uh based in New York and he actually just got done with the show earlier tonight on the East Coast and it is late over there, but he is awesome. So he decided to make the time, which I'm very appreciative of.
1: Of course, man. We gotta we gotta help each other out. It's a you know it's a it's a community. It's all <laughs> it's all love, man. It's Absolutely. Not a
0: thing. What what you reminded me of just now was uh one of my favorite skits on Living Color back then, with uh Damon Wayans. He goes, "It's a conspiracy, man. C O N conspiracy." <laughs> oh, cons- cons- is it? Was it Conspiracy
1: Brother? Was that his name? No, that well, Conspiracy even...
0: Brother was Dave Chappelle on the Ladies. Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. But on okay, Living okay. Color, yeah. oh. Loved it. It's just the
1: dude the dude that was locked up and using big words incorrectly. <laughs> For
0: sure. Uh so with you, like I said, actor, filmmaker, or you know, you have been in films, comedian. When did you first get that acting bug? When did you know it was something that you wanted to pursue? I think when my dreams of being an athlete,
1: uh when you come to that self-realization <laughs> that you're not as fast as Bo Jackson mm. and you're on the you're <laughs> on the football team they put you on the defensive line and your dreams just get shattered mm, okay so <laughs> yeah so this is like before junior high and uh you know like just sports isn't what you thought it would be like it was it was still fun but it just wasn't something that I could really excel at. Like I could if I would have stayed in football, I would probably be decent. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have been pretty decent in high school, but uh I just didn't have the passion for it and uh when I was in moved to from 6th grade to 7th grade, I got I transferred to a new school and their big thing was to join the drama club. Like if you were in the drama club, you got to go to Bush Gardens Williamsburg in huh. Williamsburg, Virginia. And I had never been
0: uh, it was. It's a theme park. I think it's. It's still around. I guess. Possibly and, uh, a lot of those old theme parks, even if they are still around, you just walk in and you feel like you need a tetanus shot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of them, like uh, I used to work at a Six Flags. which well, okay. It's now a Six. It's now a Six Flags. But when I was a kid, it used to be Wild World, hmm. and uh, and when I was st- my first real over-the-table job was uh, money being, you know, you get a real paycheck. Was, I was like, uh, you make
0: it sound super shady My first, over-the-table job. <laughs> like, what were you doing at 12 years old? I was trying to make that
1: the inverse of under-the-table, where it's like I was cutting grass, you gotcha. know, like as as a, <laughs> as a kid, you know. And then when I turned 16, I got the, the job at uh, Adventure World. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked at a go-kart track. But to answer your, but to answer your question, um, moved to a new school, big big deal to be in the play, and you got to go to Bush Gardens, and uh, I had never gone, and I went to audition for The King and I, uh, Mm. the Rodgers and Hammerstein play, absolutely, and uh, and I was still like, I know, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it, but I was still kind of scared, and they wanted me to play Anna's son. Uh, and I was, I was kind of nervous about that. And so I did not audition for that and they made me the king servant. (laughs) Oh, and so I had like two or three lines. One of the lines was, uh, the man, the lover has been found. He is dead. You know, (laughs) I think that, yeah, so that, you know, that was my first foray. And then, uh, I was hooked ever since eighth grade musical sound of music. I played max. Nice. And, uh, and that was like a really big turning point for me in my life, I guess, because this was a predominantly white Catholic school in mm-hmm. Prince George's County, Maryland. And uh, I just remember, like, I didn't make waves as an athlete there, like in baseball or basketball. But my, one of the things my dad said to me was that when people saw you in that play, when the black parents saw you in, saw you in that play, they were really proud of you. Cause I would speak up, I had to speak Mm -hmm. up and sing and stuff. And at the end of the play, we had to like, do like these impromptu, this impromptu ceremony about, you know how you give the teachers awards and stuff Right, right. at the end, you have to say a few things after the play. And they, he said that the parents were really proud of that. And then I remember like playing baseball after that, uh, I would strike out and, uh, (laughs) one of the parents, one of the parents would say, like, he would say, uh, the parent one of the parents of my teammates would say that's all right hollywood you're going to be all right that's all right hollywood nice. you know he was like you're he was like you're better you're better than this right. <laughs> you you do you'll you'll be doing something else this isn't your your thing and then i just kind of carried that with me through high school and um uh still was apprehensive about it um freshman year and the guy that played um the captain in sound of music captain was, von trapp uh, yeah Captain Von Trapp, he did the show, this play called The Matchmaker, and he got to kiss this really pretty girl who was a junior. And I said after that, I'm never, not going to audition. So, <laughs> right. uh, so I just went went on it, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: Nice, nice. So from the the very humble roots of of the stage, now give people a little bit of you know a little taste of some of the work that you have done as a professional actor did a lot of
1: uh stuff in chicago i did uh a play called the exonerated which got nominated for a joseph jefferson award which is like the the tonys of chicago mm-hmm. in chicago theater like they have like the equity and non-equity branch so it's like the union and non-union right uh did a play that i was really proud of called blue orange uh which was a play that I believe Chiwetel Ejiofor originated this role of this young guy who, uh, who had a borderline personality, personality disorder, and there are these two doctors, one that was older, one was younger, and their, their debate on how to treat this mentally ill patient that thought Idi Amin was his dad and, hmm. uh, and oranges were blue and i played that and you got yeah and i had the i had this uh had the like a a cockney accent and it was really cool it was like a three-hour play it was just me and two other guys and i remember like we got written up in the uh we got we got really good reviews and we got written up by the chicago sun times and and I remember when the reviews came out, more people started coming to the show. And it was pretty neat. It was really neat. Uh, and that was probably one of the most rewarding uh, experiences that I've had like as an actor. Uh, just like with the great director, uh, Jessica Jackson. Shout out to her. Mm-hmm. She's in Colorado. But it was just a, a, an awesome experience. Because um, Chicago is a place where... You really get to learn your craft as an actor. You might not get paid that much, but you <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> really learn how to how to uh do your craft and uh and uh work
0: and it and it, it carries you to wherever you go. Nice. Now from there, since you've also done and continue to do stand up comedy, which mm. came first? The comedy or the acting? Was it something when you're in middle school Started to realize your athletic hopes were not really there. Like were yeah. you always the funny guy, or like when did when did you start to really pursue the comedy as well as the acting, or did they tie in together?
1: Well, comedy really was uh, suppressed for a long time because mm. when I was in when I was that age, when I was in junior high, age twelve, thirteen, that's when like Def Comedy Jam was around Right. and it was at its height. Martin Lawrence, who is was my hero back then. Uh, And um, he was from Prince George's County, Maryland. So I looked up to him and uh, I really like loved his stuff. I would watch deaf comedy jam. Uh, If I didn't watch it live, I would tape it and watch it Saturday mornings and just, uh, and I would hold my uh, tape deck recorder up to the TV and make uh, like cassette tapes out of it. So I could listen to it. Wow. while before I fell asleep. So that was like a really obsessive uh compulsive so you had the, the
0: VHS version and the cassette tape version.
1: <laughs> yes, and I had like uh Richard Pryor tapes, um uh Paul Mooney, his mm-hmm. two his two uh comedy albums. Uh yeah, man, I was really obsessed and then I just think I saw somebody get booed on Showtime at the Apollo doing stand-up, <laughs> right. and I was just like, ah, I'm not going to do this. I'll just pretend to be other people and right. uh, do, that, do that with the theater. But uh, I, I didn't get around to doing comedy until June of 2009 when I had moved back east from Chicago. I uh, spent five years in Chicago, three in grad school at uh, the Chicago College of Performing Arts mm-hmm. at Roosevelt University.
0: Yeah. So, so 2009 that was the first time you hit the comedy stage. Yes, June of 2009.
1: I think it was at it was at it was at um this place called Comics which is no longer in existence. It was a comedy club on 14th and 9th in the Meatpacking District and they had this basement, they had a main stage and they had this basement room called Ochi's Lounge where uh where the people that was that were at the main stage shows they would go downstairs to go to the bathroom and sometimes <laughs> they would see people doing stand up there so the first time I went on stage it was an open mic on a Monday around nine thirty or 10 o'clock when, when they, the
0: hottest crowds are there the Monday yes. at nine o'clock crew
1: <laughs> yeah and it was all it was pretty much all comics and uh you had to pay five bucks and uh they put the money in a pot and at the end they did a drawing and uh you would win the pot if you um you know, if they called your name. And I actually won the pot oh, my wow. first night. And I remember calling my parents, they asked they said, uh they said, Oh, how did, how did it go? It's like it went pretty good. It was pretty good. I won forty bucks and uh I'm gonna I'm gonna they told me to come back. So I just kept coming back and
0: yeah, it was. That's that's where I started. Nice. What was the difference? Would you say like being on the stage as somebody else, as a character in a play, versus on the stage by yourself?
1: It's interesting because there's no. I mean, I think with the theater training, there's there's a, a stage presence mm-hmm. that you have that you build up. There's an ease that that it doesn't it doesn't take longer to get to that ease of uh having that comfort on stage i guess um the difference is now i kind of sound like a douche when i say the way that i do comedy john (laughs) right it's like it's just a heightened version of who i am Mm -hmm. so it's really there's really not much artifice there so it's just like it's it's me. You know, like so if you were to see me on stage, you'd be like, Oh, that's Chris, I know that guy. Right. <laughs> and this is him. You know, it's not like you're not seeing any
0: it's pretty much unfiltered, but it's just it's not, you might have Welcome to the Stage, wacky Chris Lambert, and you have a bunch of props ex- and makeup.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's not that. It's like more like the style that uh like some of my favorites like Bill Burr, Patrice O'Neill, uh mm-hmm. Louis C. K. Like those like those dudes are pretty we're pretty grounded, you know, um, and they they are who they are. And then you you have that aspect of them in performance, you know. Right. So that's that's it was that theater acting is just kind of like it's you, but it's a certain aspect of you that you're accentuating. You know how that is. You, mm-hmm. You're a performer and it's just like you're you're trying to fulfill the demands of the text of the script right. that you that you're working on and, and in, the, in the same way you're doing that with comedy as well like if there's certain notes uh that you have to hit where it's like i know that i want to have this type of inflection on this on this punchline or this setup has to i'd like it to be this way so there's there's a lot of similarities uh too um but that you're just
0: using different tools from mm-hmm. your tool belt okay yeah. and i mean i definitely think that getting comfortable on stage is something that I mean, th- there is a reason that nationwide, one of the biggest fears today is the fear of public speaking. People just it still feels weird to a lot of people. To yeah. me, I never understood that because to me, it just it always came naturally. But I think, you know, having that experience of being on stage as somebody else, then kind of gives you, like you said, more tools in your toolbox. So then when you did get on the stage the first time, as chris lambert the comedian it was like okay at least i know what this is i know what this right. feels like and it was not you know like a lot of comedians or a lot of first time actors that first time they hit the stage and the lights come on it gets real real quick
1: yeah it's still a it's still a thing that there's always like butterflies and mm-hmm. nervousness for me like you never you never know like it's almost like a thing that you you feel compelled to do where it's like I got it. I want to get on stage. I want to tell these jokes. Uh I want I have to tell this person's story mm-hmm. in this play. So it's 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 like this uh this visceral need to be on stage and to say what you have to say and and really be in the moment of what you're trying to and what you're trying to do. Like I like I've been working on like the last like 3 years of my of doing stand-up just trying to be more lucid mm-hmm. because of the theater background where it's like, I'm going to say this and this is going <laughs> to elicit this, this, and this. And I'm so used to this, all these things happening. Uh, but with, with up, you know, you still have to have this awareness. Like uh, it's, it's like sports. You have to read, you know, reading the defense and all that jazz, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. Nice. Now, as I mentioned also among your, multiple pursuits you also have the mundane festival which has a ton of episodes when did you first start mundane festival and kind of what was it about podcasting in general after being on stage and being getting that face time in front of people that you wanted that comfort you know of just kind of being at home and doing your own thing
1: um I guess, so
0: I started it five years
1: ago, almost five years ago. This was around March of 2013. Which is and, huge,
0: like, not to interrupt, but five huh. years in the podcast game is huge. Like that, I mean, I definitely I have so much respect for, for you, even though I did just cut you off in the middle of what you were saying. That's a, no, that's uh, all right. <laughs> but you yeah, cut like me that.
1: off to, to, to give me some uh, praise, so it's right. all right.
0: So yeah, I mean, just big shout out for that, because five years doing anything that is what i always tell people you know when they ask about podcasting or other pursuits that you do in life they're like oh how long have you been doing it six months a year once you get past that one year two years three years the thing that you stick with for five years you know is coming from a place of passion so five Mm. years huge kudos to you now you can go back to the beginning of
1: where it all started (laughs) thanks man and then you just wonder with no real sponsorship it's like why am i still doing it well <laughs> right I, th- I think it's just really for its intrinsic value i like talking to people i mm-hmm. was a communications major i had a radio show in college and uh a couple of, one of my buddies uh paul Versey, who's a very funny comic new york comic um he did it by himself he mainly did his shows by himself uh solo, you know, episodes and occasionally mm-hmm. he would have on a guest. So I would try to I wanted to see if I could do that. Uh and and it's kind of pattern after uh three people really uh, Paul Versie's the verzi Effect podcast, mm-hmm. Bill Burr's Monday Morning podcast, and another buddy of mine, uh Maranzio Vance who is a comedian out of uh uh Los Angeles called uh, the Just Killing Time podcast. He does it sporadically, but it was kind of like in the same vein as what those guys were doing, but it was just with my personality and uh you know taking that and and just having my imprint on it. Mm-hmm. So those those uh so Paul and uh you know I had the three guys on podcast, Randolph Terrence, Andy Klein, and Tim Miller, those guys, and Rod and Karen from the Black guy Who Tips. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of under that that universe of people that sort of inspired me to do it. Uh, also, Christian Polanco, who is uh, I'm shouting people out, but yeah, I mean it's th- those Christian Christian Polanco was sort of like my tech guy. He now has a podcast called The Hoot Cooligans, uh, which nice. is a soccer podcast with uh, Alexis Guerrero's. Um, so he was kind of my tech guy. He said, you know, just, uh, you get a, get a zoom recorder, uh, and you start from there and just see what you have. And so he was very instrumental in those initial pro in that initial, uh, period, uh, mm-hmm. and, in my t- income tax return, I got the recorder mm-hmm. and, uh, I wasn't trying to, uh, did not want to be a typical black person and get sneakers. <laughs> Actually, I did get sneakers. I was like, "Come bro. on now!" I was
0: like, "This is a
1: safe <laughs> space, Chris." Uh. I know. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, but yeah, I did. So I got, I got the, and I just invested in myself. It's like we were talking about earlier, just mm-hmm. investing in yourself and um, putting your best foot forward and giving it a go. And I never really looked back, you know. Nice. And it's grown, and you know, I'm getting to talk to people like you and all kinds of stuff, man. So it's really, I've just been having fun
0: with it. And that is that is the biggest part of it is I was just talking about this with another friend and podcaster, you know, because he was talking about how he feels a responsibility and all that. And it was like when this stops feeling fun and it starts feeling like a job, it is really time to reevaluate your priorities. So as much as all of us, every podcaster I have ever met, including, you know, some top tier ones that I have had some talks with, nobody is satisfied. You know, we always want more listeners or more sponsors or whatever it is. But right. But as long as it is still fun, the rest will fall into place, however it is going to fall into place. Yeah, that's true. So, and then your Definitely. podcast comes out every
1: week? Yes, every week. I like to put them up uh, on Sundays mm-hmm. so people will have them, you know, when they're going to work. Uh, so, I like to start their week off with that and... uh I've been—I have started, started a Patreon page, uh, maybe like late last uh, in the fall, mm-hmm. and it's slowly—it's slowly building. It's so, like I have my little independent movie reviews and special episodes and uh, other stuff like that. So it's constantly growing. I'm uh, trying to figure out what else I'm going to do with
0: it, but um, yeah. yeah, nice, yeah, because the indie movie corner, you know, something that you yeah. do kind of behind the patreon wall so i definitely encourage people to go you know check that out uh is it just patreon.com slash mundane festival
1: yeah and i gotta get you on to uh talk about some stuff like independent films it's just where Mm -hmm. i nerd out like i nerded out for about an hour and a half on your favorite movie and mine columbus Uh (laughs) uh-huh uh-huh yeah Yeah. it was a
0: beautiful beautifully shot movie uh yeah. I am I am honestly a little bit surprised it did not get any attention for cinematography. Yeah, you know, well,
1: I it just makes me uh excited for what he's Koganon is going to do mm-hmm. next and for sure. uh it's just a beautiful film. Although I think, you know, uh Coco kind of took the best thing that happened out of 2017 for me. Like those two like I got I kind of got to give I don't know, man. I love. I really love both of the, both mm-hmm. of those two films from Coco, last Coco.
0: I have seen Coco twice, and okay. definitely cried both times. Uh, like, what the, part did you cry? So the first time I saw it, it was at it was at a press screening, you know, mm-hmm. and it was. Or actually, no, the first time I saw it, it was actually at home. They sent a screener. Um, okay, and I started getting choked up. Like, first of all, any <laughs> family drama movie. Of course is going to get to me as, as it does with most people. Right. So I think the first time, let me see. I mean, within the first like 15 minutes when you start seeing, you know, his grandma and you know, you start to like really understand what the family is going through. Yeah. Yeah. That got emotional. And then the second time I watched it, uh, was with my family and then all of us just lost it. Like, I mean, it was in the beginning, definitely at the end. You know, and I will not spoil anything, but it's just like the final song when yeah. all of us are just begging, just like sing the song, <laughs> and it just like you just want it to happen so much, and then it does, and it, yeah, I loved loved Coco. Yeah, that was a beautiful film. Yeah, nice. All right, cool. So that was the getting to know you section uh, for Chris Lambert, and now we will get into the director spotlight of spike lee you know again a little independent filmmaker you might have heard about him (laughs) he has been making movies since 1986 uh and all of his movies and what we will do is we will just kind of go decade by decade and just touch on a couple of them because like i said he has 77 directing credits on imdb granted some of those are music videos or you know, short films that he did in college or that he did his master's thesis on. So we're not really going to touch on everything or this would be a four hour podcast. So we would just go decade by decade. Uh, we chose a few in each decade and then we added a couple more uh, as as before, right before we started recording. So Spike Lee or Shelton Jackson Lee basically is Brooklyn is bed is New York. Everything about Spike Lee, and you know, similar to what we talked about before, that authenticity. Like, the person that you see as Spike Lee, as the filmmaker, the artist, when you watch interviews with him, you are like, oh, that is the same guy. Like, the same guy who has been courtside at Knicks games for 25 years shouting at people. Like, he is still that kid From New York, even though, yes, before anybody listening is like, yeah, he wasn't born in New York. We know that he was born in Georgia (laughs) in Atlanta uh, and then moved to New York later, went to college in back in Atlanta and then moved back to New York. So what would you say was the first experience you had with a Spike Lee film? The first
1: experience I would have to say was do the right thing okay because i was about i was nine years old and i remember like all the controversy it's like oh the black people are rioting in the theaters and they're gonna <laughs> they're shooting each other and all this stuff and it was such an intense movie and i was like who is this guy mm-hmm. and like this guy like uh he was the person that i would say he would have to be one of the first people to really spark my interest in the arts because it was like this nerdy looking guy mm-hmm. <laughs> and he and people were uh, always focusing on him. Like why? What? And he put images on screen that looked like people that I knew or looked like people right. from my neighborhood looked like, you know, my parents and family members. And it was something, it was like, it was just him, John Singleton and Maddie rich where these filmmakers were like putting out these, uh, interesting film so i would have to say it was do the right thing was the first one for me okay and then i kind of came came back to school days and she's got to have it like mm-hmm. when i got a little older
0: seeing with me the first movie that i actually like remember even though so i had the poster in my room because we grew up chris and i both grew up in the michael jordan era yes so in my room growing up I had the Michael Jordan poster and underneath it said the best on earth. And then Michael Jordan is holding Spike Lee up by his head and it says the best on Mars. Mm -hmm. So I had that black and white poster in my room for years, not knowing what it was about at all, because the marketing marketing (laughs) campaign for she's got to have it where Mars came from. I had no idea where it was from. I just I was like, cool. New Jordan poster. Boom. Put it on my wall. And mm-hmm. so the first movie that I actually remember was Malcolm X. Like that was the one okay. where I was like, okay, this is Spike Lee. And then I had that same reaction. I was like, okay, I already know about Malcolm X. I'd studied him, you know, blah, blah. And then I saw the director doing some interviews. I was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. This guy who is a little <laughs> bit north of five foot with glasses and looks nerdy. I was like, okay. So then again, then it took some diving into what he had done, and then since then, of course, not even keeping up with, trying to keep up with all of the things that that he has done. Yeah. So, well, cool. Then uh, what we will do is we will start in the 80s. So 1986 was Spike Lee's first film, first major film, I should say, which was She's Gotta Have It. Now, this story is about an artist who is Very sexually expressive and sexually open and trying to find basically not trying to find her place, but trying to establish her place and her agency in New York in the 80s with multiple partners and how not necessarily how she reconciles it because she is pretty much she knows who she is, how her partners, you know, decide to reconcile their relationships with her. So with this one, it was black and white, 1986. When you went back that first time after kind of, you know, seeing who he was and watched this for the first time, what were some of your reactions or what have your reactions been kind of as you have gotten older and had a little bit more of a lens to reflect on? Well, it's
1: been a while since I've seen this one and I haven't seen the uh, the uh, the series, but it's just one of those this is just spike lee saying here i am Mm -hmm. uh putting this like this woman who is empowered and has all of her male suitors uh kind of at her fingertips you know she's got them on a string uh the dialogue was you know snappy uh Mm -hmm. they had that intense uh
0: was it rape was it not yeah and 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 that's like a real (laughs) it is like Spike, spike lee has talked about in recent years when yeah. he even said it was an article, I think, on like Hollywood Reporter years ago, when he was like, If I had to do it over again, I would not have done that. Right. So, I mean, right. and again, like, you know, retrospect, you know, hindsight is 2020, all of that. This was his first major film. Uh, try and find any filmmaker who would not go back and change something about not only their first film, their first films, plural. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, th- there is a very tough scene to watch. You know, when you watch it these days, or I mean, even back then. <laughs> but you know, you and yeah. I did not remember it when it first came out. So going yeah. back and watching it, like it, it is a it is a rough scene, and it does tonally fit the movie. That does not make it any easier to kind of to get through.
1: Yeah, and this is one of those films that's kind of. Uh... I don't know if this was like the one of the first films that dealt with uh, like black people in like living kind of uh, complex and interesting lives in the way that they. I don't remember seeing anything like this before Mm -hmm. uh, this time. I mean, like afterwards, you had like Have Plenty, you had Love Jones, you know, uh, like the romantic comedies, but they're. They're like sophisticated, though. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's not really the the slapsticky thing of like uh, I don't know baps or uh, Strictly <laughs> oh, Business or stri- right. sh- Strictly Business and whatnot. But it's just very like
0: I mean, dare I say, uh, Woody Allenish. Uh, you know, I, I would characters? say more just very just raw and authentic. Yeah, the way the way that Spike Lee. Not only filmed this, but most of his catalog, especially his early stuff, those are real conversations that people would yeah. be having. Like, because I think mm-hmm. he really understood. I mean, he was the writer and director, you know, of these. So he was yeah. like, okay, let me draw on either my experiences personally and we'll get into some movies that really deal with that, or maybe some of the stuff that he saw growing up, some of the stuff he was a part of. So that authenticity right off the bat. In his first film, it just it set the tone. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, so from she's gotta have it, then two years later, 1988, we go to School Days, which is a very different movie, <laughs> completely. Yeah. Then, then she's gotta have it. Uh Do you want to go into a little bit about what School Days is? I mean,
1: it's uh a classic film that that kind of explored the lives of of people at an HBCU Mm -hmm. uh, to the the the, I think of that the the big musical moment Mm -hmm. uh, that that sequence of how how much uh, depth it had you know just like for just a movie you think about oh it's kids in college but it's just it's more to it than that like it Mm -hmm. like he had all of that and it was in it was what almost what 30 years ago yeah. pretty much 30 years ago doing all this like interesting stuff where it's like it's a a multi-faceted film mm-hmm. um it was it's just impressive i think that's one of his best yeah and it was something I do that
0: have, as kind of a you know musical comedy you know mm-hmm. type of film where you know uh of course he's in his own movie because Spike Lee loves to do that, you know he well, wants then he, to.
1: You know he said he said on Jesus and Mero, uh like a week or two ago that mm-hmm. he said you know it he didn't if he didn't have enough money he would just put himself in the movie so <laughs> he wouldn't have to cast anybody so maybe he did that maybe and then probably he still likes that being in the movies too.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, th- uh. I think that is part of it. Just kind of the indie filmmaker philosophy of like. Alright, this is one less person on payroll, and here we go. It is me. So, yeah. I mean, it has, you know, him, he is pledging to, uh, what was it? Was it Gamma? Gamma Phi Gamma. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the leader of the fraternity Gamma Phi Gamma, Gamma Phi Gamma is somebody who he would then go on to work with a bajillion times. Giancarlo Esposito is yep. the head of this fraternity. You have Tisha Campbell Martin, Oh, man. My crush for Tisha started very early in life. Uh, before I even knew that she was in this movie, because this came out, you know, like, before, again, before I was really into film, I was, I was really young. Seeing her on Martin, and then, you know, finding my way to school days, being like, okay, she was, she was gorgeous in Martin. This mm-hmm. is something a few years before, and she just slays it. But the film, I mean, it addresses things like colorism it addresses yes. things like different texture hair and the two sororities that are kind of going against each other and one of them a lot of light-skinned women the other one mm-hmm. not so much so Lawrence Fishburne is in there as i will i will not say that he is kind of hotep level uh but he is, <laughs> he maybe is getting a little bit close but, you know he is very, you know, he wants to be very black and very proud and everything. And has this fantastic scene with Samuel L. Jackson, you know, being like, so you come into this city thinking that you guys are all of this. He was like, we're from here. We grew up here. You're just a college kid. Yeah. So it, it dealt with so many things. And again, in a film that ni- came out in 1988 of stuff that still goes on right now. And I think all of his films, As we will get into them, it it kind of shines a light on things that were happening at the time and a reflection of how things are still troubling now. The same issues.
1: Definitely. Like His work is timeless and and at the same time, it's universal too. I mean, I think a lot of times with black art, it's sometimes harder for... uh, Others, when I say others, I mean white people,
0: <laughs> right? To, if, if this were if this were a print interview or a conversation, there'd be an asterisk <laughs> next to that, and then down at the bottom of the page.
1: It's like to find humanity in in us, where as as black people, mm-hmm. as minorities, we we consume everything, so it's easier for us to find humanity in a, a digital Mexican kid. In cocoa Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so it's not that's not uh like uh that's not like a a a weird thing for us but i think sometimes i'm looking at the school days google page and Mm -hmm. it's 62 percent on rotten tomatoes and it's like really yeah so it's just i don't know man like it's it's um i think it's harder for people to find humanity in people of color
0: uh It's hard for them to make that leap sometimes. Yeah, Uh, definitely. Uh, And then the next year, and basically like school days in 1988 started mm -hmm. Spike Lee's trajectory. Unlike anything pretty much we have seen in a long time. He went on a run of releasing pretty much a movie a year for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like that type of output from somebody who school days was his second film (laughs) and then just kept working and not just kept working. It, It would be one thing if he was producing independent films and doing all of that, he was getting funding from major studios. They constantly were like, okay, what is next? What is next? So that speaks volumes of just the amount of, and again, 62% of Rotten Tomatoes, it hurts now, uh, but I'm thinking, you know, that also is only people going on it these days after watching it, you know, years after it came out. So, yeah. but at the time, everybody was just like, or all of the studios were like, okay, if this is what you want to do, this is what is going to keep happening because all of them had lower budgets and all of them made a ton of money. Yeah.
1: It's interesting because like these were while these were small films they seem to be pretty big in scope too. For sure. Yeah. You know when you think of like the musical number in in uh in uh, school days mm-hmm. and, and 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 we're going to get to do the right thing but it just seemed like these there were these small small films with like the that pulsated with this energy that was very expansive mm-hmm. i mean you know like i guess he didn't really get to his biggest budget film until he got to like miracle at saint anna i know malcolm x is one we'll get to that but yeah. <laughs> but miracle at saint anna was like that
0: like he had never done a, 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 war, like a yeah. war movie yeah. war movies in general those those are going to be pricey yeah so cool uh so after school days 1989 was do the right thing this is one of the ones that is quintessential spike Lee where yep. school days as much as i I might enjoy the movie that is not going to be the first one that i I recommend to people because it is pretty uh I'm trying to find the pretty singular you know in it in its focus, whereas do the right thing. You know she's got to have it again. Another brilliant film, but "Do the Right Thing" is something where you can tell people go check out this movie. This is New York. This is his vision encapsulated. So Mm -hmm. "Do the Right Thing" basically takes place in one day uh, on the hottest day in Bedstuy in the Bedstuy neighborhood, and all of the character studies that Spike Lee did in this film that had to be drawn from the people that he grew up with, the neighborhoods that he grew up in. And again, he started to find people to work with and continue to work with. And those actors pretty much have all gone on to do amazing things. I'm not going to completely attribute that to Spike Lee, but he started working with the same group of people or a lot of the same people in his movies. And all of them were, successful so in this yeah, one, it's like, oh, go ahead
1: Oh, I was just going to say like they're all like very good actors and he probably developed a shorthand with them too where it's made it easier to work with and you
0: know yeah yeah for sure I mean because you have John Turturro in this Samuel L. Jackson the first film for both Martin Lawrence and Rosie Perez mm-hmm. and any kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s for some reason I will always have a soft spot for Rosie Perez. It just she she is incredible. And watching it like she was on somero also recently.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I actually um I don't know if you remember
1: this. If you remember BET in the mid nineties, mm-hmm. there was a show called Teen Summit. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? I remember uh I auditioned to be on that show. Wow. And I didn't I did not make it. That was the biggest disappointment in my showbiz career. (laughs) Uh, So that, so that's when I knew, like, at that, like, fifteen, sixteen years old, was when I knew that, like, you don't get everything. Okay. Like, so so that's when I first, I was crushed, but I did get the opportunity to be an audience member on the show, and one of the first shows I did, I was on, maybe went to maybe two or three tapings, and Rosie Perez was there. And uh, yeah, she's beautiful, and she's she's a, she's a treasure. And I think I might have asked, I think I might have asked her a question or something. I don't remember, but I just remember her being on one of those episodes that mm-hmm. that I went to. That's just a sidebar. Continue. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, but again, it speaks to that authenticity. Rosie yeah. Perez back then and today is the same person. Hmm. You know, so whether the industry, quote unquote, the industry wants to change people, and they frequently do, there are going to be a lot of actors, a lot of people in the business who are like, "Nope, this is who I am. This is where I came from. This is what I am doing. I'm not going to accept anything less." So, right. was do the right thing. Uh, Spike Lee again cast himself, uh, like School Days, like a lot of other things, and. This mainly focuses on the dynamics of a little pizzeria in which Spike Lee works and the racial tensions that kind of explode in it. One of the scenes in this, John Turturro and Spike Lee are having a conversation. John Turturro's character is the son of the the shop owner, who is pretty racist in a lot of ways. And so Spike at one point has this conversation with him and they're like, He was like, "Okay, you say these horrible things, yet your favorite actor, your favorite comedian, your favorite athlete are all black. Do not understand how that how that that is confusing? He was like, oh, but, you know, it's they're different and blah, blah. And it just (laughs) those types of conversations uh, I know I have been a part of in my own life dealing with dealing with people (laughs) so that that dichotomy of people want to be something or like something while also not wanting to respect it or respect yeah. them. <laughs> exactly. It's so, real. Yeah, it, it definitely is, is real. So do the right thing was 1989. That kind of wraps up the eighties the decade. Uh, so we'll move right along to the nineties. Now, again, these films are the ones that I started to become a little bit more familiar with. And especially as I got older and kind of going through his back catalog. So 1990, Mo Better Blues, starring the amazing Dental Washington, who again would appear in more than one Spike Lee joint. This is about a jazz jazz musician and his tumultuous life, both with love and music and money and family and just all of these things in this kind of beautifully structured mess that he lives in. <laughs> yep. So Bleak-, Bleak Gilliam. Bleak Gilliam. Yeah, that is one thing that in Spike's movies he gives some of the characters the weirdest names, and I do not know why. Uh, in uh, jung- In Jungle Fever, that we will talk about next, the lead character is Flipper Purify really spike like come on now so but bleak is denzel washington's character in mo better blues jean esposito again is in this denzel or sam mm-hmm. sam jackson is in this also wesley snipes wesley snipes like he stacks the deck with phenomenal actors and yet in a young filmmaker at this point only having a few films he is able to challenge those actors almost like nobody else has, which that, mm-hmm. that speaks to his just knowledge and his respect for the process, for everything, for you have these professional actors coming in with a young director and he is able to give, he is able to help them give absolutely tremendous performances. Uh, yeah. the scene in Mobutter Blues where there's kind of the infamous, <gasps> Uh, sex scene where Denzel Washington confuses the names of yeah. the girls that he is with. The editing in that scene to this day is great because he is essentially mm-hmm. it, it cuts between his conversation that he's having between his girlfriend for lack of a better term, and the girl that he is sleeping with, the side chick, and they know about each other, but he is just going back and forth, awesome, awesome scene. Yeah, this
1: was um, this has to be. I think it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, it's Denzel. I think this is their first time together mm-hmm. working together. It's just uh, jazz. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big jazz guy, but I mean, this is one of those movies where you know, like rappers will make the references to. It's just right. um, it's just it's it's just something that's embedded in in the culture, and it's a uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a it's a classic film, and it's just you kind of marvel at it, mm-hmm. uh, looking back at how great how great this film was, um, is, and still you know mm-hmm. and still is. Yeah. It's just like that run that you're talking about, where like where he's just this string of movies that are all very different but all very good. You
0: know, that had something to say that was really interesting and compelling. Yeah, I mean, and that was something that I forgot to mention with "Do the Right Thing." That was the first one where he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello. Mm -hmm. And this is his third film. Yeah. Like, again, that is just some impressive stuff. There's a scene in Mo Better Blues where Sam Jackson, I mean, I'm not even going to put a spoiler alert in this movie, came out. Twenty-seven years ago, it's, <laughs> twenty. Years yeah, ago. It's, yeah, it's it's the, fine. Almost, the,
1: yeah, it's almost thirty years the old. The statute okay. of limitations is over, but at one point, yeah,
0: Sam Jackson just beats the hell out of Denzel Washington. At one point, like hits him with his own trumpet. Mm-hmm. Like it was just this brutal scene, but it had that same type of authenticity and and just raw emotion that Spike Lee had been kind of becoming known for in all of his films up to that point yeah uh so then moving along to a controversial movie another controversial movie but for a different reason uh this time 1991 jungle fever so Mm -hmm. (laughs) do do you want to go over this one or should should i give the synopsis uh yeah just do the synopsis so basically uh (laughs) wesley snipes uh is a very successful architect and is married he then starts having an affair with uh this young uh, woman named angie who starts working in the architecture firm that he is working for and the whole marketing behind this this i mean i say this one was controversial mainly because this was one where i where i I remember seeing these posters Mm -hmm. and similar to how you were saying with do the right thing how you remember people like oh there were riots in the theater and all of that I remember seeing the posters for Jungle Fever and some of the old people being like, oh, I'm I'm not too sure about, about this movie. And it's concerning because the poster is Wesley Snipes and uh, Annabella... Ooh, what was her name? Sh- Shiora. Shiora. Uh, Their hands that were intertwined. Wesley Snipes is midnight. I mean, the the man is dark. <laughs> and yeah, his, have... his,
1: char- his character in... Uh... Do the uh, Mo' Beta Blues was named Shadow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that yeah. gives you an
0: example. And so the poster has their two hands, a very, very white hand and a very, very dark hand right up front. Mm-hmm. And it says Jungle Fever. So it was in people's face right away. And as the movie develops, obviously things go badly uh, pretty quickly in this Pseudo, not pseudo relationship. This relationship that develops between Wesley Snipes um, and Annabella or Angie in the film, his relationship falls apart. Then their relationship falls apart. John Turturro is in this. He starts dating a black woman. Their relationship falls apart. Like this is a tough movie to watch just because of the amount of failures and heartbreak surrounding how people view your relationship from the outside right
1: one of the things i appreciated about this film was the way that he wrote both sides both like you know the the white characters and the black characters and they they weren't weren't just cartoon characters Mm -hmm. you know uh and it just had it just had a lot of it's had a lot of depth it's just real it's it's just another. I sound like like a, a broken ring. This is just another great film. <laughs> uh, you had you had Halle. I think this is Halle Berry's coming out party. Like she had a little mm. part. Yeah, and playing the playing the crack fiend and and Sam Jackson, uh, pretty much having a a role where he playing Gator, oh, where his man. he he finally, you know, he shows people what he's made of,
0: and this is a critically acclaimed role and. What, what is just crazy some... is in two of Spike Lee's movies, well, actually in multiple of Spike Lee's movies, there have been some pretty serious Oscar snubs. Mm-hmm. Sam Jackson as Gator in this, the scene towards the end when he is like rifling through the house, you know, I mean, he is on crack, just all strung out, just like trying to get money from his mom. And the mom just wants to help him. Uh, the mom is, of course, Ruby Dee, who is phenomenal, was phenomenal. Uh, and Aussie Davis is his dad. And that scene where you just see Sam Jackson, like he is at 11, but this is before we really got to know Sam Jackson, who now kind of is consistently at an 11, <laughs> seeing him just like tear apart the house, tear through her purse and just like, just like, I just need money. I just need money. And she was like, you can sell this. And he was like, I don't want that. I just need money. Like it is a gut wrenching performance and yeah. no nominations no nothing <laughs> yeah
1: yeah well you know so it goes that's that's pretty much uh
0: yeah Yeah. uh so then the kind of pivotal movie at least in my spike lee memory was a 1992 Malcolm X in a yeah. performance that Denzel Washington again talk about snubs this in my opinion is one of the biggest snubs of all time denzel Mm -hmm. washington as malcolm x if that is not an oscar winning performance i do not know what else ever will didn't uh
1: pacino win for *Sin of a woman this year in that year (laughs) -ah. i think yeah i think he did uh this was a very influential and important movie for me because it was just uh like, it was – I've said this a lot of times on my show, on my podcast, where it's just, like, how most of us idolize athletes when we were coming up, you know, mm-hmm. as kids. As any red-blooded American, you kind of – Right. You, you idolize these guys. But the stuff, like, that Denzel uh, did on screen, to me, was the equivalent of Jordan dunking, you know, yeah. like, the, the way that he can – the way that he moved people and and uh, it was just a fantastic performance uh, with a lot of nuance and it wasn't just this fiery guy it was just like that evolution yeah he took he took us through everything
0: um and from it the showed hustle. oh yeah so it, it showed that Malcolm X similar to what Selma did with Martin Luther King Jr. yeah as much as we idolize these incredible men for what they did, they were far, far from perfect. Right. And both of those movies, Selma and Malcolm X, showed that. You know, it, it did mm-hmm. not really sugarcoat things, and it was not like right. No, he was perfect, and he was, you know, all of these things, and you know never did anything wrong. It was like, he was, I'll not say a troubled man, but he was a man trying to figure out his place in the world and the place for his people. And his people yeah. shifted, you know, throughout yeah. his life, you know, even though he did not outright say that, you know, white people were the devil in the later years of his life. He still had a lot of problems, but he, oh, yeah. he grew. He evolved that post Mecca. Malcolm was a very different person. And Spike Lee was able to take all of that story that, you know, and Alex Haley, you know, wrote the book and that it was based off of. And really show that journey of mm-hmm. of a man just trying to figure out life. Well, that's basically what it is. Like,
1: what you just said it. Like, it was a guy trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And he just happened to be this monumental, iconic person. He eventually became that iconic person. It was just a... This was one of those films that that inspired me. And looking back, you know... It's uh it's one of the reasons why indirectly why you and I are talking today. Hmm. You know, where I like I'm like a i am like I love film and and love, you know, being a performer. It's it's because of Denzel and Spike Lee,
0: right? Yeah, tremendous tremendous movie. That that is another one where similar to do the right thing. If people are like, I, "You know, I only have this weekend to watch three Spike Lee movies." What should they be? Mm-hmm. Malcolm X will always be on that list. It is a tremendous yeah. film. Yeah.
1: It's like you kinda have to put when you talk about Spike Lee's films, you kinda have to put Malcolm X. There's Malcolm X and then there's everything else. Where it's like <laughs> yeah. you can't really classify Malcolm X as just in a class by itself and then you just work from everything else, mm-hmm. you know. That's that's kinda how I look at it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so from the biography of Malcolm X to a semi autobiographical film called Crooklyn in 1994, Mm -hmm. this I think was Spike Lee's, one of his more personal films, but structured in a non Spike Lee way, as in he does not play the main character kind of going through the story and we don't focus on him. It focuses on a little girl and her family that of course is in bed you know, in Brooklyn, in New York in 1973, but just about what it means to be family and the sacrifices that you have to make as a family, both, both parents, I mean, are a mess (laughs) in this film for different reasons but they try and stay together as a family as much as possible while dealing with the crazy characters that are in not just the neighborhood that are literally next door or above them or below them. So, and this one is semi autobiographical because Spike Lee has talked about. This is a, a personal film. This is what it was like to grow up in those neighborhoods at that time you can change names, you can change families, all of that. The messages behind it were still the same. And that struggle mm-hmm. and that turmoil while maintaining a family or trying to maintain a family is is kind of just brutally honest. What I remember a lot about this, I remember my dad
1: taking me to see this. I remember, like in the film, I remember the soundtrack. We mm-hmm. uh, had the shy Lights on there. Uh, that old girl record that they played, and then uh, the the uh, the Crooklyn song, Crooklyn, the, yep, by the Crooklyn yeah, Dodgers, <laughs> Special Ed, uh, Buck Buckshot, Shot and, and, uh, and Master Ace, Master Ace. Mm-hmm. I, I remember
0: like memorizing that song. Yeah. <laughs> See what is funny is when it comes to soundtracks, Malcolm X was actually a soundtrack that we listened to as a family all the time. It was a two CD set. Okay, and it was phenomenal. Uh, beans and cornbread, you know, was on there, and just so many things we could listen to as a family. And then it sounds like the next movie that has the family connection of your dad actually taking you to the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, this because this one, Crooklyn, it had this. Um, this the Mark Dorsey did this cover of "People Make the World Go Round," and I remember I learned that song from the mark dorsey cover and i sung it at our black history uh program in high school i think nice. when i was like so i remembered that song and it, that was one of my probably one of the a bigger moment where i had this i sung in front of the entire school so okay. that was pretty neat yeah nice. that was one of my like pivotal prefer- and i didn't bomb so it was hey. pretty pretty neat yeah you <laughs> know you That's all you can hope
0: for is not bombing that know? is awesome the the first, like, I mean, I have always been in theater and in plays since, like, first grade. But yeah. similar similar story. So, the first time I actually sang, like, at a talent show in front of mm-hmm. the entire school. And some of my listeners, I can already hear them typing on their keyboards, sending me uh, messages about this. But the first song that I sang, like, in front <laughs> of the whole school of the talent show was A Whole New World from Aladdin. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> i can
1: show you the.
0: World. oh yeah yeah it was uh, it was pretty amazing uh and i was it was me there were actually four of us it was two guys and two girls because at that that year of course everybody wanted to do that for the talent show and the music teacher was like i can't have it played twice so all four of you are going to sing it at the same time together were you were you pissed that you didn't get a solo absolutely and so then <laughs> so then, all four of us are up there on stage singing this. None of us know when the song stops. So we just oh. eventually ended up just fading out the song and then slowly walking off stage. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah it was, those it was, were the days. It was a bit rough. Uh, so cool. <laughs> Moving from 1994 to 1997. Now, there were two films in 1997. Uh, the first one... Four little girls. Now, this was Spike Lee's first foray into the documentary world, as opposed to doing these narrative, you know, focused movies and character studies. Four little girls was about the 1963 murder at of uh, four girls at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama and Birmingham, Alabama. This documentary, which actually in reading about it. He wanted to do this as a drama like he wanted to make this a character piece. And then as he started doing the research on it, he was like, no, he was like, the story is already there. I just need to tell it. Right. So that was pretty incredible. Uh, This one, one of the amazing things about this film in 2017, it was actually selected for the United States National Film Registry and the Library of Congress. For it's just impact. The cultural, historical, and aesthetically significant impact. That, I mean, okay, yeah, he did not, you know, he did win. He was nominated for Best Documentary that year in 1997. But then to have your film in the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress, I mean, that that is huge. So this documentary, yeah. incredibly powerful stuff. If people have not Heard about the bombing in Birmingham, Alabama? Definitely do some research or watch this film because without, I mean, I hate to say it, but without that incident and the results of that, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 might not have happened. As insane as that is. Didn't Spike say something on Jesus and Miro? How he said
1: when this movie came out, it caused them to arrest the at least w- the people that were still alive at the time. Something yeah. that they got prosecuted.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, I think, and I read something about that. Uh, so it was the person who was finally held responsible. It was in mm-hmm. 1977 when he was actually convicted. So 14 yeah. years after all of that, right. So right. that just it is just crazy, phenomenal story, heartbreaking story, but a great, great documentary. Uh, and yeah. then you brought to my attention before I started recording another film that came out in nineteen ninety seven. Though when I was going through the list, I was like, "I was like, all right, I need to pick and choose." skip past this one, but tell the listeners which one you wanted to draw attention to. <laughs> It's
1: he got game. Yeah. How can you forget how can you forget, you know, Jesus Shuttlesworth and <laughs> Jake Shuttlesworth? This is I guess this has a lot I mean, I think it's a great film, but it has this uh sentimental value to me because my freshman year of undergrad, uh we used to watch it all the time. We used to this 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 was Rosario Dawson's coming out party. Mm-hmm. This is when, when she, I mean, yeah, she did kids, but this is when she came out as Lala. Right. And she's, you know, this beautiful woman. Uh, <laughs> uh, Denzel had the fro. Oof, yes, he did. You know, you know, the crazy fro, the, like, it was just. Ray Allen know, it, was in this. <laughs> Ray, yes, Ray Allen, Hall of Fame, soon mm-hmm. to be, at the time, soon to be Hall of Famer. Uh, it was just a. It's one of those fun, fun Spike Lee movies where it wasn't like these social issues are thing- are happening and this is, you know, it was just, uh, it had a higher replay value, I would say. Not to say okay. that his other ones don't, but it's just like... they are a lot more dents. Yeah, they are a lot more dance, And you kind of, for me, at least, I'm not going to put it on you, but... Uh, you kind of have to be in a mood to watch a certain like a movie like Malcolm X, oh, or 100%. do the right thing. Yeah, so it's kind of like you. This one was a little more fun. Like one of my favorite scenes is when Denzel, uh, does that like throat chop to that Oof. to that guy. You know, like that guy and and the dude, the actor that he throat chopped was on this show called Heroes. You remember Heroes? Yeah, uh-huh. On in, And he was, like, supposed to be some hero, and I was like, nah, you don't have any superpowers. <laughs> Jake Shuttlesworth throat-chopped you, <laughs> right. and he got game. Like, I don't believe anything you're doing right now, mm-hmm. dude. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, obviously gets into, uh, like, college athletics, how they're mm-hmm. using these kids and making money off of them, and you know, with the social commentary, like a lot of times, you know, Spike has a lot of access to grind mm-hmm. and uh, and and rightfully so. Uh, but at this one, I just say we should highlight because it's it's one of those films that's uh, a little a little more fun. It's got something to say, but there, it's a little yeah. I think he has a little more fun with this one.
0: I could definitely see that. I mean, it has father son dynamics, which I have talked about yeah. multiple times it will just punch me in the heart. Every time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the father-son stuff in this is is hard to watch. Because uh, Denzel, yeah, Denzel is not mm-hmm. what you would call a loving, supportive father. <laughs> he,
1: was an, he was an asshole. Like, he was like, uh, he was uh, he was a, this is pre, pre uh, Alonzo from Training Day. Oh, so yeah. So some of that was, yeah. So it, we were getting to see Denzel play more of a flawed character. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't this uh, righteous guy. And I think that was a little more. That's another reason why it was fun, too. You know? Yeah. I would say.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Cool. And then so that actually that rounds out the 90s. And I know, dear listeners, that we are skipping over a lot of stuff. If we have not talked about your favorite movie, (laughs) hit us up on Twitter and let us know. But Come on now. Unless you wanted a four-hour episode talking about every film that he has done, we have to pick and choose. Yeah. So, out of the '90s and into the 2000s, the year 2000, another—I will not even say—I mean, it is pseudo-documentary because he does cut to clips of behind-the-scenes. But in 2000, the original Kings of Comedy, which was a traveling show. You know, country, country countrywide traveling comedian show with legends, legends. I mean, you had Bernie Mac, DL Hughley, Cedric, the entertainer, Steve Harvey, who had been doing a national tour. Spike Lee recorded the last, I think it was like the last two, two or three days, you know, of that and formed this movie around it, intercut with Mm -hmm. scenes of them on the road, them backstage. But also, it is just a stand-up comedy special with, of course, the kings of comedy. Like, when it comes to mm-hmm. black comedians at that time, those were the major ones. Like, those were it. Those right. were the pioneers, you know, post, you know, Paul Mooney, you know, Richard Pryor, you know, things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those were the guys that were constantly working. This is another one. This is another film that. I mean, I was 20 years old when this came out, mm-hmm. and I did not. It would. It would be. It would be nine years before I became a stand-up comedy <laughs> right. comedian. But it, it was like you know, this was a uh, an influential movie too because it was like it, it was a, an important film because it was. Huh. it gave bernie mac a, a career like it propelled him to getting getting his uh his sitcom mm-hmm. and made him a star but it also highlighted uh comedians that that were sort of uh that weren't respected by mainstream america yeah. uh weren't fully accepted uh i think you know Sometimes people look back on the you know those deaf comedy jam, deaf comedy jam in and of itself, it had to be created because black comedians weren't getting the opportunity exactly. to sh- yep. to show what they can do, and it was sort of looked down upon. It was looked down upon by a lot of uh you know of their of their white counterparts, mm-hmm. and uh, it be- it became you know that Netflix special that came out. Yeah, you that see was great. all the. Yeah, you see all the people that it affected, and how big those guys became—men and women became—and mm-hmm. uh, then you had other people trying to say, "Oh, we're the whatever, whatever's of comedy, trying to uh, right. you know cop copy this thing." But it was just—it uh, was great. I mean, it was amazing. Like Bernie Mac, uh,
0: his his set was just phenomenal. It was just fire. Because I was thinking, like back on the. Def Comedy Jam, you know, both on the show and on the tour, Bernie Mac was the closer. And as a comedian yourself, that closer, like, you have to come with it. You have to show, like, no matter who was before you, if people are starting to get restless or whatever, it is your job to wrap everything up, to make sure that people leave that that night being like, that was an incredible show. They might forget about the second or third person who maybe was not as great so yeah. that experience of him being a closer with Def Comedy Jam, then with original Kings of Comedy, like you said, it kind of propelled him into the mainstream. Because at this point, Steve Harvey and Cedric the Entertainer were already on a TV show. They, he already had mm-hmm. the Steve Harvey show on, I think it was UPN back in the day. <laughs> uh, see, the, the WB. It was a WB. The WB. But yeah, it eventually became, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so with Bernie Mac, this was something when they were like, oh, uh, this guy's pretty funny. Uh, We should uh, put him in stuff. And I was like, this has been a working comedian for 30 years. For (laughs) for years, yeah. So, I mean, similar though to like Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney only did two CDs, but he wrote for everybody for like 40 years. Mm Mm-hmm so people
1: just people just kind of discovered i was kind of a hipster about that like mm-hmm. when Chappelle show came out i was like you guys he's been doing it longer but uh i gotta i have to shout out uh d.l Hughley mm-hmm. because d.l D. Hughley was uh the one of the he was the reason that i got in at caroline's really he was the, the first time I, the first time i worked at caroline's was because of d.l Hughley. Uh, I had uh, went to see DL at my home club, Levy Live in West Nyack, New York, which is a suburban club. And mm-hmm. uh, he went to he played that club maybe like five or six years ago. And I went to just go see him, and because that was my home club, I just kind of wanted to shake his hand. I was like, "Oh, my name's Chris. I'm a comedian." And he's like, "Oh, cool, man. Come on backstage. He, he like, come back nice. to the green room. So I hung out with him in the green room." And uh, found that his manager, his like body, one of his managers, bodyguard guys, was a friend. Like I, I knew I went to school with his daughter, hmm. and then and then like we became, you know, we talked, and then I got his info, and then he put me. I did guest spots for him, like all throughout the weekend that he was there. That and, is uh, awesome. Yeah, and it was in front of packed houses. They I had to take the bullet and uh go up and uh do guest spots. It was and he, he was didn't know really know me from Adam, but he mm-hmm. just gave me the shot. So that was like that's you know like that 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 I'll never forget that.
0: Yeah, a huge shout out to D.L. Hughley if he is listening. I hope he is listening. That would be amazing if you were listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that was Virtual Kings of Comedy. Uh the next movie in two thousand. We talked about Jungle Fever being controversial in its marketing and its messages. People without even seeing the movie were like, oh, I'm not too sure about this. Uh, Spike Lee's next movie in 2000, easily also one of the most controversial films in Spike Lee's catalog and in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So in the year 2000, the film is bamboozled. And boy howdy, was this uh <laughs> uh an interesting film that a lot of people hate i
1: loved it man uh yeah man because it was just like uh it was a it was a satire Uh uh-huh uh uh, it was i like the tap dancing well i mean okay so so to set up the
0: the story a little bit (laughs) uh, oh oh shit okay i'm sorry my bad my bad it's fine uh Oh yeah, so the, the the tap dancing was done by Sevian Glover. Uh Sevian Glover and Tommy Davidson are actors brought in to do a TV show that was just a minstrel show. And it was in the movie, it was all about uh Damon Wayne's wanting to get fired from the TV mm-hmm. station he had been working for. It felt underappreciated. Uh Michael Rappaport, you know, was his his boss and he was like Listen, he was like, the only way I can, I'm on contract. He was like, but the only way I can get out of my contract is if I get fired. So I'm going to make the most offensive TV show possible and do a minstrel show. Yeah, it turned out to be a huge hit. And then it just backfired because then it became this huge hit within the film. He then is working more than he <laughs> thought would he was hoping to get fired. Uh, but yeah, so Sevian Glover and Tommy Davidson are the characters you know, in the minstrel show. And Sevian Glover, like, I grew up watching him on Sesame Street and then seeing mm-hmm. him this, because this was, I think, I feel like there was this right before or right after he started uh, Stomp. Well, I know it was after Bringing the Noise, Bringing the or bring Funk. It, yeah, Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk. Yeah, yeah.
1: That was like 95, 96. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was was doing he was doing that. This was like, you know, he, the director's commentary Spike Lee would talk about he he patterned this movie after uh Elia Kazan's film A Face in the Crowd starring Andy Griffith about this this guy that just kind of uh I'll read you the the little there's a uh, ambitious young radio producer Marsha Jeffries finds a charming rogue named Larry Lonesome Rhodes, played by Andy Griffith, mm-hmm. in an Arkansas drunk take and puts him on the air. Soon Rhodes' local popularity gets him an appearance on television in Memphis, which he parlays into a national network, national network stardom that he uses to endorse a presidential candidate for personal gain. But the increasingly petulant star's ego, arrogance, womanizing, and womanizing threaten his rise to the top. It's a little bit of that, huh. and it's a little bit of uh, like his, like you know, like Andy Griffith's characters is like this humble guy, but then he, he becomes ego maniacal, right. And and then he has a downfall, and it's like the producers as well, okay? You know, yeah, they yeah. want to like the the Nazi thing. You want it to be so Springtime out for there. Hitler, <laughs> yes? And it just becomes a hit, and it becomes its own monster. And 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 Pierre Delacroix, who Damon Wayans portrays, mm-hmm. has to uh, face has to deal with the the monster that he created. Yeah, um, this is something and it's it... just <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it like I I just if you want to peel peel back a little another Chris Lambert acting story. Absolutely, one, one of my first understudy gigs, really one of my only understudy gigs. I did this uh was a part of this play called The King of Coons, which wow. was written which is written by Charles I think it's Charles Fuller. I can I can get that real quick for you. hmm But it was a play, um Yeah, I think it was by Charles Fuller. anyway, it was loosely based on the life of Step and Fetch It. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the the character his the character in the the play was uh cotton picket mm-hmm. but he was this classically trained shakespearean actor that did these films th- to that to make money right you know he did like he cooned it up to make money and then he still he had to live with himself mm-hmm. so uh yeah man it was um that was one of the first plays that i the only play that i understudied for with this theater company in chicago called the congo square theater company and it was directed by harry lennox who mm. played who was in the five heartbeats right yeah yeah uh, the li- the dresser the matrix uh the blacklist that dude mm-hmm. and he was he was very influential uh, shout in my- out
0: real quick to all of my blacklist listeners and by that i mean okay. anybody who is over like 50 who watches the show because apparently it is all 50 year old and then me uh who watches that show <laughs> It is good. I had an audition for it last year. Okay, see, thank you. The show, I mean, I talked about it with my No Shame November episode with Tim and Jess and Damien. I know the show is dumb, and I watch it all the time, and every episode, I have that same reaction of, why am I still watching this? The show is ridiculous, but Harry Lennox is great in it.
1: Why are people mad about that? Well, this was okay. This was written by Michael Henry Brown. He he wrote King of Coons, but okay. uh yeah, that's that's weird. That it's just a show. It's not. <laughs> right. It's not like I, I watched maybe the first two or three episodes to just get the vibe of it, and the mm-hmm. role that I auditioned for was just like an an airport bartender, right? But uh, but uh, it's it's not it's not bad. I don't have mean, any problem it, with it. Th-
0: as the seasons went on, it got more and more ridiculous uh but yeah i got a lot of heat uh when that episode came out where i talked about it Uh, a lot of people were like wait that show i think my parents watch it and i'm like okay all right thanks yeah uh
1: i wouldn't i wouldn't worry about that uh i think i'm i think i might be the only person that watches nashville okay yeah you i think you're alone on that buddy me 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 and my dad i think it's just me and my dad and uh this one girl that I one a friend that that I reached out to recently. I was like, "Hey, you still
0: watching Nashville?" And she was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was like, "Come on." Uh, we'll... I mean, so yeah, so uh, tying it back in, into bamboozled. Bam- I mean, yeah, so great, it's the, great the, film. The, the marketing behind it. I mean, again, it was very in your face, and I think a lot of people, especially the older generation. It made them really uncomfortable that I mean, the marketing, the poster has a child, a little blackface child with a giant slice of watermelon. Like it is in your face because Spike Lee does not care. Like Spike Lee, he got to the point very early in his career where he was like, I'm going to make movies that speak my truth. Yeah. And if people watch them, great. If not, who cares? Turns out. Yeah. People watch them every single time. So, mm-hmm. that was 2000. Uh, in 2002, 25th Hour was one that I wanted to put on the list because talk about something that was different and and a stark departure. I think this was one of the first ones where he directed someone else's work. Yes. So, the book was written by David Benioff and mm-hmm. Spike Lee directed it. Stars Ed Norton uh, as a... Convicted drug dealer, I mean, who basically is on his way. He has 24 hours left before being sent to prison for seven years and basically just a day in the life of him trying to make amends, talk to his dad, talk to his family and figure out kind of what is going to happen. All while kind of intercutting from the past and things that happened that led to, you know, everything that was going on now. Yeah. One of the what I think they said one of the best post
1: nine eleven films or something uh got some type of award I don't know but I remember mm-hmm. it coming out after uh nine eleven this was just a great film mm-hmm. this is almost really like solid. What, Yeah, why it's just like he didn't do more like this I mean I mean I don't know that it was uh was it suit 23 million at the box office it's still kind of a small
0: i mean the budget small, i think was only like five so it was yeah. like it still made four times it made the budget. Money. <laughs> like
1: yeah like nerds like you and me would you know be excited about it but i don't know that uh but most but the people that i was around back back mm-hmm. then like i was around a lot of like actors so they were like oh yeah this was great ed norton you know so um yeah, a lot of my me and my friends really
0: uh, dug this one. Yeah, and late was, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes, absolutely. You know, and this was one that I saw at a little independent theater in Oregon because mm-hmm. this was not playing at the AMC's at the Regals. Like this mm-hmm. was a pretty art house <laughs> film, yeah. and so I think that that contributed to why it only made twenty three million. But at the same time, with a budget of five. It it's still made quite a bit of money. Right. Uh, yeah. I, it's in my collection. Nice. Uh, the next one is another one that was a departure. The 2000s is really... I mean, yeah, the, I would say the late 90s, 2000s is when Spike Lee, I would say, was not really done telling his stories, but mm-hmm. wanted, to, wanted a new challenge. I think as a burgeoning filmmaker, he was like, all right, my challenge is to tell my stories in my voice and have people deal with it. And yeah. then as as he kind of got through a lot of that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, he had a lot of axes to grind. And I think yeah. once he did that, he was like, okay, now I can kind of relax a little bit and do some different projects. Because he did, the one
1: where, the part where I noticed that the most was like, She Hate Me, but that was like 2005, yeah. where it was like, I liked a lot of the stuff that he was doing in it, mm-hmm. but, like, o- overall, it wasn't cohesive. No. I think that was, like, '04. That was, like, two years later. Yeah,
0: but, Anthony Mackie was in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I but purposely yeah. did not put that one on the list, because as I was going through it, I, I was just like, I remember it, but I just, it was just kind of blah compared to everything yeah. else. He was like John Henry, but
1: with sex. Uh, <laughs> wow! But was but was like the you know Clockers ninety four ninety five ninety six right. that was a that was like a the Richard a Richard Price novel mm-hmm. that he I don't know that he adapted it or what but that was another one that was that was really good but go go to
0: your next go to your next film so the next one two thousand six Inside Man with yes. Clive Owen Denzel Washington Jodie Foster i love this film like in general i am a huge fan of heist movies it is why i will see movies like den of thieves even though it was terrible (laughs) no it wasn't
1: dude look man i i listened to i listened to your review Uh uh-huh and this this was before this was before i didn't i didn't know if i was gonna see it Mm -hmm. and so my expectations were low like like you and uh, the the uh, hot fire starter crew, shout out to those dudes. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, okay, but I went to see it to kill time before a show I had. Right, dude, I
0: I enjoyed it. I had a good time. I mean, it was okay. It, it was not terrible. It was 100 percent generic action yeah. heist movie. It did some unique things. I will give it that. Uh, but yeah. I I love a heist movie, and so right. I will see just about any heist movie. I don't want to get off track too much but did you what did you think of Logan Lucky? Logan Lucky, I actually missed Logan Lucky. That was okay. one that I, I still have not seen and what was funny is one of my listeners she recently reached out to me. And she was like, "Hey, I just saw Logan Lucky, blah blah." And I was like, "Cool. I just I <laughs> I've not seen it yet." It was <laughs> like, "Cool, good for you." Well, cuz it just like, and I get it. Like a lot of people will come to me, they will hit me up on Twitter or something, they like, "Hey, I finally saw this movie." And it might be one that I have not seen every now and then. So yeah. I'm like, Ugh. So I have not seen it. Uh, but do you recommend it? Was it good?
1: I do, yeah. Like, that's that's a little more sexier, Ocean's Eleven-y. Okay. Uh, it's, it's fun. Uh, but, yeah, Den of Thieves, man. I, I know people were trying to compare it to Heat, you know, Heat
0: Junior. Uh, it was trying to compare itself to Heat.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I liked it. I was just talking about someone at the show that I was at, you know, tonight, I was just like, it was fun it was fun, you know. Yeah. But I sentimental factor for this one, I think that my mom and dad and I went to see this together and that very seldom happens. Oh wow. So that that was uh I think that holds uh value in and of itself. Denzel being a a, a cool mm-hmm. detective uh you know the cat and mouse thing with yeah. you know Clive Owen Jodie Foster looking surprisingly Jody Foster's always been attractive I I never had she's she's attractive but it was something about those uh I guess her shoes what was it the Mono- the the Louboutin uh, I don't even oh, Luba- Christian Louboutin uh, Person, Louboutin Lou, yeah yeah she mm-hmm. was just looking she was she looked great it was just a fun movie and mm-hmm. I remember the du- the director's commentary of this this is one thing that I appreciate about Spike is that listen to his director's commentary mm-hmm. you can tell that he loves making films right and he's a fan of the performers he's a fan he's like he's looking at his film like he didn't direct it, like mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like an objective like point it. of view,
0: like, oh wow, like yeah, this is interesting, x, y, z, yeah,
1: yeah, and like that sequence where, God, what is uh what's oh my God, you can probably help me on this, uh when they were trying to figure out the language it wasn't Bulgarian, it was uh, oh my god, oh the
0: the stuff that was in the safety deposit box or like some of those yeah. records. Yeah,
1: it was something that they like. It was between the police officers, and they got this pretty woman to come in, and she was from another country. Mm-hmm. I forget what it was. It was just a sequence where it was like a cultural hodgepodge mm-hmm. of, of the characters trying to uh, decipher some type of language. I think it was Albanian. Yes, Albania. It's like,
0: oh, you're from El-, You know, like that. That whole. It was funny. Mm-hmm. It's a really good popcorn movie. I mean, this was this was great. I mean, and not only was it a heist movie. It did unique things. It did stuff that we had not seen before in a heist movie. I mean, building yourself into a wall. Mm -hmm. Nobody had, like, giving everybody the same outfits when they came out of the bank. Nobody knew who was who. Like, it was just clever. I really, really like Inside Man. I think I stole the term, like, that's above my pay grade from
1: this movie. Oh, I use that where, all the time, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> we where, where, like, somebody at work was, I said, ah, I don't know, It's not my decision, that's above my pay grade. So, <laughs> for you sure. guys figure it out.
0: All right, uh, so the last one that we will wrap up with uh, is 2015, uh, and it is the one that we mentioned earlier, Chirac. Um, <laughs> so... Whew, full disclosure, this movie is a mess. This movie is, again, we talked about how Malcolm X, you should put in a different category. Like, yeah, Spike Lee directed it, but in a different category. Chirac needs yeah. to be in a different category, as in never mention <laughs> Like, <laughs> Wow. It was just, not even never mention, it was just... All right, so Loose Story, it was based on the Greek play... Uh, Lysistrata and but set in Chicago about gun violence the women stop having sex with men and that will show them and that will reform gun violence (laughs) (laughs) oh what like this is one of those Greek plays where as an actor uh, I'm not sure you know you probably had to read some of those just like I did Mm -hmm. some of the Greek plays are solid and they work for what they are, when you try and modernize it, it does not work. I mean, it just—it just is—is it just is tough to do. And this one, it just failed as an adaptation of a Greek play. It also is just not a good movie. Yeah, some I didn't care
1: for this one as much, and some of the actors didn't really handle the text that well. Yeah, New. No. <laughs> It kind of took it took me out of it. But, uh, John Cusack. Oh man. Like I'd have to it's been a minute since I've seen this one, so I have to go back, but I just remember not really it's not one of my favorites of his. hmm
0: Well what's it's funny just, is uh Tim and I, the people's critic, he was talking about how uh when films like this come out, films like Chirac, in Seattle, uh a lot of the critics shall we say, have a different different mindset uh, when it comes to, to films and are very delicate in their reviews of certain films. Another okay. example would be Detroit, where a lot of reviewers in Seattle are choosing their words carefully and everything. It takes somebody, and it took Tim, who said it flat out. He was like, that movie was not good. And so many of the critics let out this sigh this like almost audible sigh of relief being like, "Oh, good, A black guy did not like it. Okay, so this was my problem yeah. with it, and it was like because they were just so worried about stepping on any, stepping on somebody's toes. Here's the thing: Not all movies are good, right. Regardless of the subject matter, if you feel uncomfortable in your review pointing something out because you're worried about how it might come across, I can respect that, but at the same time, as a film critic, it is your job to objectively look at something. And if you objectively look at it and say, this is not a good movie, but you are waiting for approval from the black guy in the room to say that, <laughs> we got a different set of problems. I don't think so. it's that's weird though. You don't, is that, was that weird to you where the critics didn't
1: want to say anything
0: until Tim said something? Oh my gosh. With Detroit? Yeah. I came out of Detroit livid. Like, I was upset. I was offended mm-hmm. by that movie. Mm-hmm. Watching other critics kind of dance around it and be like, well, but um, uh, maybe it was. No, it was bad. Like, it was just a terrible movie. <laughs> but, the, you know, that, that concern of not wanting to offend or, you know, not, quote unquote, getting it. And then bashing it, and then getting called out for it. Just like, just be honest with yourself in your review. So it it happens pretty frequently. Wonder what
1: do they say about other black movies? Like, because it seemed like people tried to like with a movie like Moonlight. People were trying to go be retroactively and say bad things about it. Oh, it wasn't that great. Well, whatever. But like, I, that, I will not listen yeah. to any of that. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird, man. Where it's this thing, and I don't know. Maybe you can speak on it as a as a film critic because it seems like, I mean, I guess we talked about it briefly beforehand. Like where it's just like it seems like black art just
0: kind of gets scrutinized even more, mm-hmm. or or
1: I don't ah uh,
0: or not covered in the same way because again, I think yeah. part of it is that concern, and yeah, I already know. In my heart of hearts, that Black Panther is going to have that. I have a feeling like there are going to be a lot of critics who, A, are going to bash it unnecessarily because of whatever, and the inverse. I think there are going to be people who are like, it was amazing, it was blah, 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 because they might be worried that if they yeah. say something negative, they're going to get you know taken to the carpet for it. And it just like... Just be honest, like if if for whatever reason, and I hate to even put this out there, if Black Panther is not the greatest movie, guess what? I already bought my tickets. I'm already seeing it twice like I, you know, it is (laughs) is going to happen. I'm supporting the culture. Yeah, but I just you already saw like with the Rotten Tomatoes stuff recently, how there was Mm. a group on Facebook who wanted Mm. to purposely give Black Panther negative reviews to drop the tomato meter. Right. Facebook killed their group. Rotten Tomatoes said that they were going to analyze all of the reviews for Black Panther with a critical eye. So yeah, it it isn't it is an interesting balance. Uh Yeah. It just seems like when black people are excited
1: about something, somebody's always has to try to put a damper on and that's that's even black people with their hotep nonsense saying like (laughs) oh man you know the white man still made this movie it's like come on man just stop trying to steal people's joy it's Mm -hmm. like if it's not this it's going to be something else but it's just
0: it's just it's frustrating to hear you know i don't i don't yeah i don't know it'll be interesting so to wrap up with with spike lee so Chirac uh was was his latest one he does have a couple things in the works uh, the clan, the Klansman. Yeah, one that I'm real interested in yet is is Black Klansman, which mm-hmm. is supposed to come out this year. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it is. I think he is going back to his roots of being like, okay, here is here are my thoughts. Here are my axes mm-hmm. to grind. Do with it what you will. I'm still going to make it. Right. So
1: yeah, I'm excited to see what that what that is. I'll always check for Spike
0: no matter what. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So that wraps it up for the Director Spotlight, uh, Spike Lee edition. Uh next week's episode, the Director Spotlight, is going to be on Ryan Coogler because next week is Black Panther Week. So definitely wanted to, you know, go over his movies and kind of where he is going as a director. Uh so Chris. Where can people find all of your stuff? Where can people follow you online? Uh,
1: You can find me at chrislamberth.com. I'm on Twitter, at chrislamberth. Instagram, the same. Uh, I have a podcast called The Mundane Festival. Mm -hmm. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. And you can find me in your New York City, in the tri-state area, doing stand-up. And uh, tentatively... Let's just say I shot a scene for Jessica Jones uh, that's that's coming out in March March 9th. Really? Yeah. Look at and you. All right. Look look at me. Hopefully it's still in the it's still in there. <laughs> I was gonna say. I'm, I, I I'm say, just saying. I say look I sh- at you. <laughs> yeah, like let's hope you can say that. And then uh, in April I'll I shot something for uh, Tracy Morgan's TBS show, The Last OG.
0: Okay. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Doing big things, man. I, I'm proud of the work that you have done on the podcast front. I'm proud of the work that you have coming up. I know that, yeah, there there are some big things. So that is awesome.
1: Th- thanks for having me, man. I'll, I wanted to do this for a while. Glad we were able to do it.
0: Yeah, especially with the time difference being New York and Seattle. <laughs> it, is, it is late while we're recording this, especially on the East Coast. So I appreciate uh, you taking the time. Uh, so for this podcast, the About Tree View podcast, uh, I've been your host, that guy named John. You can subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice, Apple Podcast, Blueberry, Stitcher, Google Play, Alexa, Amazon, all of those. Follow the show on social media at About Tree View, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Abouttreeview.com has all of the show notes and links to the guests. Make sure to also go to youtube.com slash This Friday, there will be an episode of About to Interview with David Crownson, who is the creator and writer of Harriet Tubman, Demon Slayer. It was a lot of fun, so definitely check that out. That will be on Friday's episode on YouTube, as well as the podcast feed. And also on YouTube, there will be an episode of About to Interview with all of the interviews I did at the Vancouver Short Film Festival. That should be up by the time this episode drops. So definitely check out youtubecom about to review. And also about to review.threadless.com for all of your merchandise needs. Thanks again to Damian Randall of Ill Mannered Media for the audio editing and original song. So for this episode, I have been joined by Chris Lambert of the Mundane Festival. And I've been your host, that guy named John. We will see you next time